Hey everyone, before we get started with this episode of UNT Pod, I'd like to take a minute to introduce you to a couple of my friends from UNT's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. I'm Jordan Williams, and I'm the Communications Specialist for Lifelong Learning and Community Engagement at UNT, and uh, also for the OLLI at UNC program, which we're here to talk about today. My name is Susan Sukak, and I am a member and ambassador at OLLI, and I also host the OLLI at UNT podcast. OLLI at UNT has a ton of incredible learning opportunities for adults ages 50 and better offered at five different locations across the region. Those locations include the UNT campus, Robeson Ranch, Denton's Good Samaritan Society, the Senior Center at Frisco Square, and the Flower Mound Senior Center. For a a very affordable annual membership fee, uh, members can basically take as many classes as they want. Um, A lot of our classes are just one 90-minute session. Um, Some of them run to about four sessions of 90 minutes. It's really um, just a flexible way for people to learn about a wide variety of topics, but the sciences, the arts, history is a big uh, popular subject, so we do a lot of history, um, and music is is something that people enjoy, so we have a lot of great music classes, but we do technology, um, psychology, uh, anthropology. We also have some curated lecture series that bring in sometimes special speakers. Well, as Jordan said, there's just a vast range of classes. There cannot be anything that someone is not interested in somewhere because it's just such a range. The 30-minute podcast Susan hosts mainly features UNT faculty who teach Ollie classes, and they've discussed everything from decoding the clues the Zodiac Killer left behind to how colors affect your emotions. She also interviews Ollie members about their lives and backgrounds. I'm often surprised at the gems, the really incredible things that each of the people I interview have that I had no idea. And once we start talking, they say, oh, yes, by the way, 80 years ago, the Nazis invaded my hometown and that kind of thing. And it's just a wonderful opportunity. To learn more about Ollie or check out the podcast, visit olli.unt.edu. Ollie accepts class proposals year-round from UNT faculty and graduate students and encourages its members to submit ideas for future courses. I actually went on Zoloft for anxiety when I was seven years old. I was in the fourth grade. My mother, my biological mother, had been diagnosed with cancer, and so they tried to talk with me about death. From there, it just sort of stemmed. I went off the medication because apparently it made me sluggish, and then Around high school is when the depression really, really hit hard. And then my first semester of college is, I think, where I realized just how large of an issue it was for me in a way where it wasn't affecting those around me. And I didn't know quite how to go around it coming from such a southern, farm-based, Bible, Bible-based Bible location where generally the response is, here are the Bible quotes that will help alleviate your anxiety. And so I was trying to pray harder, so then it becomes an identity issue of what's wrong with me. This is Madison Clary Wortham, better known as Rudy, an alum who received her bachelor's and master's in communication studies from UNT. The Cleburne, Texas native lost her mother to cancer when she was 11 years old and afterward was adopted by her best friend's family. Rudy loved her adopted family, but she could also feel them observing her, seemingly waiting for her to break down from the stress and grief surrounding her mother's death. Though she would occasionally fly into what she describes as tiny rages, 
Rudy mostly held it together, putting up a strong front for herself and those around her. But by the time she began her freshman year at UNT, her anxiety began to manifest itself in her day-to-day life. A lot of it was, at first, um, I remember I was sitting in the psychology class in, I think, the auditorium? And it was like a 400-person psych class, and I'm in row three with my friend at the time, and I said, I feel like an elephant sitting on my chest. And she goes, you say that before an anxiety attack. And that was when I had my first like public anxiety attack, and I, I felt so stereotypical of being the girl crying in the bathroom stall in college, and everyone's probably thinking, what's going on with her? But I was a person that did try to seek medication, and it didn't work for me as much as I expected it to at first, strictly because I was given like six things at once. And I remember calling my doctor and asking, are you sure I shouldn't sort of level myself onto it a little bit at a time? And they said, no, go for it. And so it was a lot of trial and error and figuring out what works for me and what works for you, because that's the thing about mental illness. All of it is subjective and it's completely dependent on standpoint and everyone is going to have a different thing that works for them in a different routine. Rudy says her mental health struggles began in 2004, and after 15 years, she's finally settled into a workable routine. She's learned, she says, how to put her brain at rest and to lean on those who are willing and happy to help. I was able to fall into my work routine, my fitness routine, my social routine, and there are still some days, it's cycles, right? Like it'll come in waves. It's not something I fear. I call it my cloud. Sometimes it's just like the weather. And now my support system as well has gotten better at knowing when I'm in the cloud and what techniques and mechanisms will be useful for pulling me out. But what's tricky is when you don't have that support system or when you're ultimately convinced that you don't. That's why when Rudy assumed a role as a communication studies teaching assistant at UNT, she made sure the students in her class knew she was there to support them, not just academically, but emotionally. On the first day, she'd go over the typical attendance expectations with an addendum. I understand that sometimes things happen and you need a mental health day, life happens, and you shouldn't have to apologize for being human. You shouldn't have to apologize or explain yourself to anyone for needing to take care of yourself, even if you've seemed so great lately. So just shoot me an email and be honest with me and I will see what I can do with you. But I need that honesty and you don't have to confide exactly what's going on, but just let me know. Don't lie and say that you have the flu. Just let me know, hey, I need a mental health day. Because a lot of the time, those signs are there and needing to go ahead and address it, especially with college students, is important. After years of dealing with bouts of anxiety and depression and seeing other students struggle with figuring out if and where they should turn for help, Rudy has a few key pieces of advice. Firstly, your feelings are valid, no matter how frightening they may be to yourself or to another or how anxious you may feel having to communicate those feelings to someone else, your feelings are valid. So don't think that you're being dramatic or any of these other harmful stereotypes. Second, follow your gut. Stand your ground. If your gut is telling you that this might not be the doctor that you want to tell this particular thing to, find a new doctor. It's not going to be easy. You're not going to get all of these problems fixed with your first doctor's appointment or your first medication or your first yoga trip. It doesn't work like that. It's going to take perseverance and it's going to take patience. And I know that especially in a headspace where you're finally going, wow, I need help. All you want is that immediate fix. I think it's really important to note here as well, there's no Band-Aid. 
there is no immediate here, this shot will help you here, this thing will help you. And that's why it's important to choose your person wisely. Find at least one person to openly communicate about this with. And it doesn't even have to be in person. The internet is an amazing resource, especially when it comes to health communication. You can find so many other people going through similar things. And also, I would like to just harp again on the subjectivity of it. You don't have to think that your depression isn't valid because you're not hyperventilating in the staircase like the girl you saw two weeks ago. The first step to helping yourself feel better is taking that step. And she says there are people and places right here on campus who are ready, willing, and able to help, no matter what a student is dealing with. And with strict confidentiality rules in place, no one else ever has to know that you're seeking support for whatever is weighing on you. They have weekly activities like painting and um, emotional support animals, meditation classes. There's just group classes where you go and you chat. There will be dance nights, and those are all good and fun, and those have really good um, like background resources as well that they'll give you. Secondly, a little more Eastern medicinal, they did build the meditation room in the Union, which is a great resource. It's huge if you haven't been in the meditation room. It's very peaceful, very quiet. Everyone is very respectful. And third, the counseling center, phenomenal. Rudy's story is not an uncommon one. Generation Z in particular is one of the most stressed age groups, according to the American Psychological Association, largely because the generation has come of age in the post-9-11 era, in which current events, from school shootings to sexual assault, have become more frequent and anxiety-inducing. Young adults are more likely to report their mental health as fair or poor and to have experienced emotional and physical symptoms of stress. As the campus continues to grow, hitting a record enrollment of more than 39,000 this year, UNT is dedicated to helping students with all of the stressors and challenges and roadblocks that can stand in the way of mental health. On this episode of UNT Pod, join me, Erin Cristalis, and a host of UNT-based mental health experts as we explore what prevents people from seeking help, how to know if and when you should seek help, and the resources available to every student who wants to work on their emotional well-being. Even though Rudy advocated for her students to utilize UNT's mental health resources, as a student, she often opted to try to solve her problems herself, a decision that, in retrospect, wasn't always a wise one. It's all about finding what works for you. And I do wish now, looking back at it, I thought that it made me look stronger to not file with the ODA and to try to not exhaust all of these resources. And it didn't. It actually hurt me. And looking back on it, I wish I had exhausted these resources. Because of her small town upbringing, Rudy subconsciously internalized some of the stigma surrounding mental health treatment. And while over the years, mental health stigma in general has started to dissipate, it does still exist, particularly in certain cultures and underserved communities that have little access to mental health resources. Rebecca Wirtz, an advisor in UNT's College of Science who will graduate in December with a master's in counseling, knows that reality all too well. She was part of professors Angie Cartwright, Chandra Carey, and Peggy Sabalas's four-year, nearly $1.3 million grant from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to help deliver culturally competent mental health services to underserved communities. 
Those kinds of disparities can certainly lead to stigma surrounding mental health, she says. I can't speak for everyone, but um, I can speak to at least my experience of growing up in an underserved community, a low-income you know, community, not having access to these resources, not even knowing that they exist, um, and seeing how, and it can also come into culture as well. So there are some cultures that maybe don't see counseling as a way of, you know, overcoming challenges or working through how to navigate life. Um, or there might be multiculturalism or there might be a culture that says, oh, just go, you know, pray about it or whatever the case may be. And so there might be that stigma there. Um, and part of that stigma could also be maybe um, you're, something's wrong with you if you go to counseling or, you know, counseling is for, you know, if you're crazy or there's just all these perceptions and and um, preconceived notions that, that individuals might have about counseling. And mental health is not just about immediate need, Wirt says. It's about taking care of yourself long term. I heard this analogy and I absolutely love it because I think it helps with kind of destigmatizing mental health and counseling. So um, I heard, I saw this analogy or this example of saying that it's talked about, you know, when you are physically harmed, if you hurt yourself or if you get a cold or if you get sick, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to go to your primary care physician, right? Um, but we also have, you know, they encourage us to come in for regular checkups or, you know, immune, uh, you know, vaccinations or whatever it is that that's preventative care, you know? And so we do that with our physical health. Why don't we do that with our mental health? Um, and we are mind, body, like we, we are, we are, it's not just our body that we should be um, caring for, for and focusing on. Um, it's our mind as well. But Wirtz wasn't always so on board with that philosophy. As a psychology undergrad at UNT, one course required she take part in counseling sessions as a patient. She didn't make it easy for the counseling intern she was assigned to. At first, I looked at it as resistance. Um, I didn't say much to her. I didn't really open up. Again, me growing up and culturally, there was just that stigma of mental health and counseling. And, you know, for me, it's what, you know, you, you don't go out telling your business. You, you know, keep it, you know, here and we'll handle it here. Square your shoulders back. Keep it moving. Like, that's just kind of that, 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 that I grew up in. But after her sessions were nearly over, she began to see the benefit. So much so that it inspired her to pursue her master's in counseling. Even as she's about to assume the role of a full-time mental health professional, Wirtz still sees a counselor and says she will continue to do so for the foreseeable future. I heard this my first year of grad school that counselors need counselors. <laughs> and um, so I did that as a kind of requirement. And it's so interesting because I compare that first session to my first session with like a counselor now. And that first session, I didn't say anything. I think I finally opened up to her like my eighth session out of 10, you know. But now I will walk in the first session like, where's the tissue box? Are we ready? <laughs> of course, for many people, the act of visiting a mental health professional doesn't happen until they suspect something isn't quite right. Mental illness is just something that's just so near and dear to my heart. I definitely can talk about it for a long time and, and want to. This is Dr. Rashida Sharma, a senior lecturer in UNT's College of Health and Public Service and the clinical coordinator for UNT's Well Clinic which is staffed by graduate rehabilitation studies students and offers free long-term individual counseling as well as vocational evaluations for students who are looking for career ideas. Sharma says there are particular symptoms to note when deciding if it's appropriate to seek help for yourself or someone else. And before I get into the symptoms, I want to clarify, you know, mental health symptoms are something that 
really all of us experience because these are just ways of thinking, you know, our emotions, our behaviors that um, come from just patterns that we've developed over the years. So since we all have a brain, we all also have some mental health symptoms that pop up every now and then. But what becomes of concern is when people have chronic mental health symptoms, which kind of follow them and stick with them for a longer term. So these might include things such as excessive worrying or fear, having a lot of anxiety all the time, feeling like your heart is just beating right out of your chest a lot of times when you're just walking around campus, going to classes. People might feel excessively sad for long periods of time. Now, again, there are normal ups and downs. All of us feel sad at some point, but people who may have uh, a diagnosis of mental health or just a lot of mental health symptoms may feel that chronic or long-term level of sadness. Um, sometimes people may have a hard time concentrating or paying attention in classes or um, just in general areas. They may just have a very hard time sustaining attention. So. You might notice that in a friend where they're in class and maybe they're just not catching on to things, even though they're trying. So um, that might be a symptom. There might be some extreme mood changes. So, you know, they're feeling like, I don't need any sleep. I can just run on zero sleep for, you know, two weeks in a row or feeling like I have no energy whatsoever. I just can't even drag myself out of bed. I can't take a shower. I can hardly make it to classes. So just extreme highs and lows in terms of energy as well. Sometimes people may also experience a lot of irritability or frustration or anger um, over things that maybe to the rest of us may not seem like they warrant that much irritability or anger. Um, a lot of times we'll also find people start isolating themselves and avoiding friends, avoiding family members, not returning phone calls, um, sometimes changing plans abruptly and saying, no, can't be there, just having a hard time, again, being able to um, engage socially. There are other noteworthy symptoms as well, she says. You may also notice uh, changes in whether sleep habits, where a person is sleeping too much or sleeping too little, or eating habits, where they're eating too much or not eating enough, skipping a lot of meals. You may notice uh, differences in a person's use of substances, whether it's alcohol, drugs, or even caffeine. You know, maybe they're drinking five cups of caffeine a day or drinking like five Red Bulls a day, which is not good. But sometimes because a person just feels so exhausted physically and mentally that they use those external stimulants to keep themselves going. Um, you might also sometimes notice what we call psychosomatic symptoms, which are essentially um, complaints of body aches or stomach aches or headaches or feeling nauseous um, or just kind of vague physical complaints that are typically associated with the person also feeling pretty down or low about themselves. And then lastly, one of the more extreme symptoms would be something like um, having suicidal thoughts, you know, thoughts of harming themselves, uh, whether in the form of suicide or whether uh, cutting or engaging in some other self-harm behaviors overall. For those who notice symptoms in a friend, Sharma says it's important to know the right things to say and what to avoid saying. Try to talk to that person in a comfortable space, in a place where you're not going to be interrupted, nobody's going to walk in there, and to genuinely express your concern to them using I statements instead of, you know, kind of blaming them for things and saying, well, you've been canceling plans on me, but instead saying something like, hey, friend, uh, I've noticed that you've, um, you haven't been able to hang out with us the past few times, and I'm worried about you. You know, tell me what's going on. I'm here for you. I want to help. And keep in mind that sometimes a person may not want your help right then. 
I, I would like to talk about some things that perhaps you would want to avoid saying. Um, you know, you don't want to tell somebody, well, you just need to change your attitude. Think positive and positive things will happen because unfortunately, that's not how things happen for people who have chronic, you know, long-term mental health symptoms. Um, or saying things like, well, stop harping on the negative. You just need to start living your life and you'll start enjoying it. Yes, I've heard those things being said. Or maybe saying something like, what's well, no big deal. Why are you making such a big deal? You know, get over it. Um, or perhaps just saying, well, just pray about it and it'll be fine. Because while praying might work for you, it might not work for someone else. And so those things are not helpful to say. It's also important to educate yourself about mental health symptoms. For example, Sharma says, despite the stereotype that those with schizophrenia are dangerous, they rarely, if ever, harm others. I always recommend the SAMHSA website. SAMHSA stands for the Substance Abuse Mental Health um, Services Administration. That's S-A-M-S-H-A. Extremely helpful website that lists a lot of different mental health diagnoses, symptoms, etc. that go along with it. I also um, encourage people to become familiar with NAMI, which is the National Alliance for Mental Illness. They have really good resources as well, Um, as well as just kind of educating yourself about things by listening to podcasts such as this or reading up resources. And in addition to the resources Rudy mentioned earlier, there are other UNT resources that can help as well. The UNT community actually offers some really great resources for students. Um, The one that I would I always talk about first is counseling and testing services on campus. Uh, CTS, as it's known quite affectionately, is located in Chestnut Hall, and it's staffed by psychologists, counselors, um, students doing their internship. And so any student who is on campus can access services at CTS by just walking in or calling and scheduling an appointment. For students who have a really busy schedule, CTS also offers um, therapy assistance online. So you can actually log into TAO, which is the mod, um, software that they use, and access just online resources where you can learn more about different mental health disorders um, and ways to get help, etc. The other resource that I want to share is the UNT Law Clinic um, that is housed right here in Chilton Hall, and it offers uh, free services, individual counseling services, as well as vocational evaluation services for students on campus. Um, There's also the Psych Clinic, which is located in Tarot Hall, which is also another good source of um, individual counseling services. Um, And then the last one that I would like to share is the Counseling and Human Development Center, which is located in the Napier Campus, which is kind of further down from the Union. Uh, All four of those places are able to provide um, support for not just the individual who is experiencing mental health symptoms, but maybe even, you know, a friend who's worried about them and wants to be able to talk to someone about them. Um, If you're really concerned about a student's safety or friend's safety, then the Dean of Students staff is always available for you. You can actually submit a care team report for a friend if you, you know, really feel they might be at harm uh, to themselves. You can submit a care team report by going to the Dean of Students office and the care team staff will then do a welfare check on the student to make sure they're connecting them to the resources that are on campus. And then the last resource that I have is the Active Mind Student Chapter on campus. Uh, it's been really active and they provide really good information on just kind of learning more about mental health disorders and reducing the stigma and barriers that come along with mental illness. So get involved as a student, you know, go to the Active Minds meetings or maybe seek out your own uh, counseling services so you can learn more about ways to help. Dr. Tamara knapp Gross oversees UNT's Counseling and Testing Center, and in the four years since she ascended to that role, she's seen UNT's population change dramatically. 
The campus includes people of different ethnicities, ages, religions, and experiences. And one of the things the Counseling and Testing Center is committed to is ensuring every student is comfortable as they seek help for whatever might be bothering them. When I came here, frankly, we were initially a very, not as diverse as we are now. And so we really looked, at, in terms of our counseling center, that as positions opened up, we really wanted to pick the best candidates, but certainly look for a diverse population of counselors so that we could, you know, students need to feel comfortable. The most important part of, um, of going for counseling is the therapeutic relationship that you have. So we didn't want that to be a barrier when students walk in and they would see people that maybe didn't look like them or didn't have, we didn't have as diverse a background. So we really have diversified our team significantly since that time, both in terms of, you know, ethnicity and gender, but also in terms of like clinical orientations and the type of services and the type of specialties that they offer. So that is something that you know I'm very proud of. I think our team also, um, they really take that to heart. And so we're really looking to be able to respond to the needs that you know we have at, at UNT. That includes implementing more peer leader programs, such as those offered in conjunction with the Multicultural Center and Pride Alliance. And the Counseling and Testing Center also is developing a peer mentorship program with the Division of International Affairs. They also bring counselors to students, such as through their satellite program at Maple Hall, where two counselors respond to the mental health needs of freshmen and support the resident advisors. The Counseling and Testing Center also has a Let's Talk program, where students can drop by a booth for a consult. All of these programs are important, Gross says, especially as the number of students seeking treatment rises. I think we are seeing greater numbers. Now, I think the problem is we really don't know why that is. And so there's a lot of hypotheses out there, everything from, um, you know, parenting, criticism of parenting, you know, saying that we've, uh, we've been uh, too soft and not, a, not let our, you know, our students, our students fail enough. Uh, we don't know that for sure. Um, we do know on a, on a very positive note that many students that had uh, mental health issues earlier in their life were not able to go to college in the past. Um, there were not the accommodations in place uh, for people with different types of disabilities. So on a very positive note, now those students are coming. Um, they may come with a history of mental health treatment that they may need to have for much of their life. But the exciting part is that they can get a degree with support. They can go on and, and lead incredibly successful lives. So we do know that. Um, you know, some of the other hypotheses are that we've done a great job of destigmatizing. And so, you know, maybe back in my generation, I'm in my mid to late 50s, you know, there might have been more stigma, but then future, you know, generations after, we've been talking about how it is so healthy to have, you know, the mental health support and to have someone to talk to. So that because there's less of a stigma, we are seeing so many more people. They, they, they took us at our word. We said that it was something that was great for, for um, you know, self-actualization. And so they started to come. But the truth is we really don't know. And I'm sure it's multifactorial. You know, there's probably lots of reasons. Like Wurtz and Sharma, Groves also recommends students come in for stress management and make that a regular part of their lives. My particular um, orientation and specialty is in positive psychology, so it's helping us to maximize our strengths, to be able to be the best that we can be. So, 
um, students coming in for that to lead happier lives, to make sure that they're taking care of themselves holistically, this is the time in their life where they need to be laying down those patterns and, and doing that. And while there are lots of potential ways to increase well-being, one of the most effective ones is also the simplest, she says. I think uh, one of the things that you can do is notice. Notice the people around you that are not connecting. The person that's sitting by themselves, you know, every day at, uh, in the, you know, the dining hall. Um, and reach out. Connect. Help them to connect to other places. Um, you know, if we're truly a caring community, which I really believe we are, the more that we can reach out to those that are disconnected and connect is huge. Thank you for listening to UNT Pod. For a list of available UNT mental health and well-being resources compiled by UNT Speak Out program, please see the podcast notes for this episode. To listen to previous episodes, search for UNT Pod wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at UNT Social and on Instagram at UNT.